Okay, so welcome to the Policy and Practice and Global Governance Institute event, the first of uh, the new term. Uh, the talk today is on the Global uh, Discord, uh, a new book, a very important book. Uh, I'll say a little more about that in a moment. But I just want to say this is really a perfect opening event for this, this joint uh, collaboration between the Global Governance Institute and the Policy and Practice. Because the Global Governance Institute strives to explore global issues, collective global problems, drawing on multiple disciplines of law, economics, um, politics, and our scientists and our engineers. And we've tried to explore issues around security, environment, ethics, climate change, as I say, from these cross-disciplinary and interdisciplinary approaches. And then the policy and practice seminar has always strived to bring you individuals that are grappling with real-world problems that have been at the coalface They've studied the subjects, but they've, they've had to deal with the real problems. And so today, I think we couldn't have a better uh, keynote speaker. So Paul Tucker has, has both of these attitudes in, in, in buckets. He's, he's an individual that has strived to explore his real-world experiences in an, from an academic perspective. So he's spent many, many years as a central banker. He was working as the deputy governor of the Bank of England. He was there at the time of the financial crisis, working with the BIS to, to look at international responses to, to the, these global problems. And then when he stepped down from, shall we say, the real world, he went off to Harvard as a fellow and has spent the last few years reflecting on many of these problems, and bringing both his economic and real-world experience, but also bring philosophy and, and politics to try and make sense of these, these problems. And the results of, of, of this pondering, this thinking, is two magnificent books. The first book um, that many of you know is on, was called Unelected Power. I, I turn to my right, available to buy here. <laughs> a, a really interesting book looking at political legitimacy and why you delegate, why you particularly delegate to central bankers and the problems and the tensions that can be created between having bureaucrats and, and technical civil servants working with politicians and, and the political realities that they, and pressures that they have to deal with. A wonderful book. He presented it again here in December. And now we have his new book, an absolute... <laughs> Uh, it's 100 pages shorter than the previous one. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I read it over Christmas. <laughs> but the size, it, size does matter here. It isn't, <laughs> it, he, he grapples with many, many different issues. He takes you across a number of policy domains. He takes you across time. He takes you across disciplines to try and make sense of why states compete and why they coexist uh, and, and, and the problems exist there. So I won't say any more because we have three very distinguished um, discussants also to try and make sense of this wonderful book, drawing again on academia and the real world. We, from the real world, we have Juliet Samuel, who is a columnist who's worked for the Tele Telegraph, covering politics, economics, and foreign affairs issues. And previously, I think he worked on business issues with Wall Street um, uh, Journal and The Times. So somebody who is there in the real world holding us to account and trying, trying to make sense of things that we talk about. And then we have two academics um, from our own departments and from the university. We have Jeff King, who's professor of law at UCL. He's an expert on comparative law, particularly constitutional theory, democracy, and social policy. So really well set to explore some of the legitimacy arguments that come out within the book. 
And then we have our own departments, Richard Bellamy, who's Professor of Political Theory and Politics, and an expert on political legitimacy, legitimacy and policy making, cosmopolitan intergovernmentalism <laughs> in the EU, his new book I highly recommend on that, and a new book also on fairness and democracy I saw, Richard, which I haven't read yet, but look forward to. So I'll sit down and hand over to Paul, who's going to take us through the book for about 20 minutes. And the book's available to buy after the talk. Thank you. Um, David, Fergus, Eleanor, others, thank you very much for organizing this. I'm really um, grateful. And Richard, Juliet, and Jeff, um, an even bigger thank you for um, agreeing to discuss it. When you're running a policymaker, pe people have no choice but to take you seriously, even if you don't actually deserve to be taken seriously. Um, in, in the life I try to inhabit now, in my second attempt at a career, your people don't automatically take you seriously. We'll find out whether they do. Um, <laughs> but the, there's a degree of taking me seriously just by showing up, and, and thank you very much indeed um, for that. I, I want to start off with a story. The book starts with this. It's, it's a true story. During, and I'm not going to talk about my previous life very much at all. But I guess sometime in 2008 or 2009, um, somebody walked into my office when I was deputy governor and said the Federal Reserve have refused India a swap line. It doesn't matter at all what a swap line is. It's basically a line of credit to help, would have helped India get through the crisis. And the Federal Reserve, most important central bank in the world, had said no. And my response was, don't, don't they understand India is going to be a power? And so I wasn't at all there. It wasn't just that I thought the Federal Reserve had made a mistake, is I actually thought the decision was above the Federal Reserve's pay grade. Um, which actually drives a tension between this book and the previous book that I don't ever quite bother to nail, um, but I can in questioning if you like. For those of you that bother to look at the book, um, it's, it's, it starts with a history of international organizations and regimes going back to, let's say, the 15th century. Um, it then has a um, part of the book that's about the political economy of cooperation it then brings in geopolitics and, in particular, the differences between um, Chinese conceptions of international politics and Western conceptions of international politics. The high point of the book, from my, my point of view, is part four, which is an account of political legitimacy drawn from Bernard Williams, the late political philosopher, but taken to the international sphere. I won't actually say terribly much about that. And that generates some principles that I, that I then apply to economic regimes. They could actually be applied to other regimes, and a number of people have said to me I should have applied it to national security. I, I actually agree with that. The cheap choice was to apply it to the economic regimes because I, I can kind of claim to understand them um, a bit. Although the book's structured that way, its intellectual structure uh, or its analytical structure um, isn't that at all. It's basic, until the applications bit, it's, it's one argument from part one to the end of part four. And the logical structure of the argument is it starts with a conception of legitimacy. It applies that in an attempt to make a contribution to international political theory. It lays some contemporary geopolitics on that and, and so says something about international relations, which I will caricature in a few moments. And from then on, it, it, it goes into principles of international participation and cooperation, and so to applications. And the point is that one can cut off the argument at any point. Um, I mean, somebody that 
blows up my conception of legitimacy has blown up the argument. I want to be clear um, about, about that. That's not why it's buried in the middle of the, of the book. I'm not going to start, although I'll touch on it, I'm not going to start with conceptions of legitimacy in international political theory. The book has a high road and a low road, and I hope a staircase between the two, and I'm going to concentrate a bit more on the, on the low road. That works. I want to give some headlines. Um, these are geopolitical um, headlines. There is a contest between the West, by the West I mean, um, I mean to include constitutional democracies in the East, but I'm going to use the ugly word, the West, and the People's Republic of China. And I think that's going to go on for a century or more. Um, so that when people compare the rise of China with the, if you like, quote, threat presented to this country by the rise of the Second Reich at the end of the 19th century. I, I think that's an instructive um, comparison. I don't actually think it's a completely illuminating um, comparison. I, I think um, a comparison that is at least as illuminating is the long contest between France and Britain um, from the end of the 17th century to the beginning of the 19th century. And the reason I think that's instructive is because it did go on that long, and it was everywhere, I mean, almost every part of the planet, and it was in everything, and commerce was certainly part of that. And there were moments when um, <coughs> the contest abated. There was a trade treaty sometime in the middle of the 18th century, and then that didn't come to anything, and we went to war again. And actually, they didn't recover that sense of, of um, economic cooperation until the 1860s. The, this is perspectival. France had its problems with us. The problem that we had with France at the beginning of the 18th century was their claims or ambitions to universalist, absolutist monarchy. And at the end of the 18th century, it was their ambitions to kind of universalist, absolutist, revolutionary um, world. And at the end of the 18th century, writing about this, Burke, Burke is not a guiding spirit of the book, but Burke said, the problem with France isn't its power, it's that it's the wrong kind of power. In other words, the contest wasn't just a rising state, it was somehow ideological conceptions of, of governance. And I think that's, so people that say the contest between the People's Republic and the West is not ideological, and there are very kind of esteemed figures that take that position, I think that they are deeply wrong. Um, and of course, I may be wrong, but that's my position um, on that. The second thing to say is that um, there are a number of economists, kind of proper economists and informal economists, who think it's quite likely that China will stumble at some time um, over the next half decade or decade due to vulnerabilities in their financial system and corporate system, and that's all, I think, largely true, and it might. But the implication of, for many people when they say that, um, perhaps particularly in the United States, is that if and when that happens, well, that's all over, back to US leadership, world is left as it is. I think that's completely wrong. China has achieved a critical mass its capability to project power um, so far mainly in the Pacific, but really almost anywhere, that that will not be dented um, by even five or ten years of stalled growth. And I say that because if and when China does stumble, and you read all of these articles, I don't think you should take um, their central prediction 
um, seriously. I think this struggle will play out partly um, in international regimes and organizations. And it is a world, and I want to emphasize um, this, it is a world um, where policy silos, silos between policy fields, will have to break down. And if they don't, we will make great mistakes, or they will make um, great mistakes. Um, David was kind enough to say some nice things about my previous career. Actually, I think it was easy in comparison. You could be a monetary policymaker without knowing very much about trade policy. You had to know quite a lot about trade economics. You didn't actually know, need to know about the negotiation of trade treaties. You didn't need to know about the WTO and bilateral investment treaties. Or if you knew about both, all of that stuff, you really didn't know, need to know about security and environmental stuff. I think that's all. That It will not be possible to be a tolerably good policymaker in Washington, London, Berlin, um, Paris, or um, Brussels with, without... Um, knowing where your colleagues have an interest. It isn't that everybody should be doing everything else. It's going back to my story. It's, it's getting on the phone and saying, I think we've got a thing which is above our pay grade, and you need to think about this in terms of long-term foreign relations between Washington and, and, and Delhi. Um, I am not particularly confident that those silos will break down with the speed at which they need to. I think in a sense, I'm slightly more optimistic about that in Washington than I probably am in London. The, the book runs with four scenarios, which I might come back to right at the end. Lingering status quo, superpower struggle, new Cold War, and a restructured world order. These, of course, always are approximate, hand-wavy type of things. That's what scenarios are. When I started writing the book about um, four years ago, I thought we were between lingering status quo and superpower struggle. Um, I now think we're very clearly between superpower struggle and new Cold War, um, with the exception, perhaps, of the international monetary sphere. I don't think a new world order will emerge until actually um, other great powers um, have risen, most likely India, conceivably Indonesia, creating a different kind of, of, of top um, table. I want to say, I want to caricature international relations very quickly just so that I can position myself. Those of you that are international relations scholars are going to be completely outraged. And I don't really mean it, but it's just a kind of position where I'm coming from. So what it's like, I think, being an international relations scholar, it's as though at some point in graduate studies, you're asked to report to a particular room, and when you arrive, you'll be told whether you're a Hobbesian, a Kantian, or a Grotian. If you're a Hobbesian, you will think that the world is anarchic, that the only thing worth studying is power and security, and you will essentially be a, um, a pessimist. Um, if you're a Kantian, you, you'll be somewhat more optimistic through the power of human reason with a capital R, and your focus throughout your career will tend to be human rights and other, um, other things bearing on the pursuit of, of justice. And then if, if, you're, if you're a Grotian, um, you'll be somewhere in the middle um, and the English school people down at the LSE were, uh, were like this. And you'll think your interests will tend to be international regimes and international cooperation <coughs> because of interdependencies and interlinkages. And my, my difference with them um, would be that their method tends to be deductive because they have their roots in the natural law um, traditions. I, I will skip this slide, but the abiding, the driving spirit through my book is David Hume. One way of thinking about it for those of you that are international relations scholarship is that I think the English school needed a Scotsman. Um, 
Let me make one point about promising and the difference between Hobbes and Hume. A Hobbesian pessimist, actually not necessarily Hobbes himself, um, but a Hobbesian pessimist thinks that we're just kind of absolutely plagued by collective action um, problems. And except when our interests coincide, we're bound to um, free ride. And the promising doesn't do anything to this. If Richard and I, you know, we might cooperate and I renege, and now we enter into a promise, or I enter into a promise, the Hobbesian says, well, you know, just so what? Uh, the promise operates at the same level as the, as the collective action, <coughs> the base collective action problem. And Hume, I mean, Hobbes is bloody smart. I mean, Hume is remarkably, remarkably smart. Those of you that haven't read Hume, read book three of the treatise. And bear in mind, he was 25 or 26 when he wrote it. And he's doing game theory with no notation. And it's real world game theory. Hume says, oh, no, hold on. If, if I enter into a promise um, with Richard, and this is the thing we're going to cooperate on, the results only affect Richard and I, except I've broken my promise. And you say, Tucker's the kind of bloke that breaks promises. And that matters to you as well. The audience has been widened. One game is embedded in a higher game, a game with different, with different higher level um, norms. And the reason this matters is that if we think that any kind of cooperation at all within states, but certainly among states, um, depends upon order, then the, base, the, the providers of basic order in the world, whether it's a balance of power in the concert of Europe kind of 150 years ago or an American hegemony, they are going to set the tone and terms of international cooperation. And so if you don't buy into the norms that, that they believe in, you have um, a problem. The... The book argues, I'm not going to defend here, that the norms that typically animate a political society are history-dependent, are path-dependent. They're the product of the opportunities and problems that particular communities bumped into, got their way around, or even solved. Um, the, the conventions that help them become habits, become internalized. They're things that, pe that people's communities become attached to. Um, there's more to be said about that, but what's obvious, if just something like that is broadly true, then um, other states have their own, other civilizations have their own path through history, their own set of problems and opportunities, and their own ways of having got through those um, um, situations, and therefore have different legitimation um, norms. And that, of course, is, is true of, of most notably... Um, of China. But I want to emphasize something that's tremendously important. This is not a point about civilizational contest in the sense that Confucian heritage states are destined or inevitably somehow at odds with us and we with, with them. One of the most important things I say in the book, and perhaps don't say enough about, partly because I'm not capable of saying enough about, is that I think that the Confucian heritage states that are constitutional democracies, notably South Korea, um, Japan, but others too, are tremendously important in the modern world because they have demonstrated that you can be a constitutional democracy without losing your sense of history and your sense of, of collective um, identity. Which brings me to document number nine. How many people in the room have heard of document number nine and the seven no's? One, 
two nights ago at the LSE, I would say it was four or five out of 200. On the whole, people didn't know. I didn't until I read the book. Um, it came out in 2013. I think it is quite extraordinary that, that I and my then colleagues were briefed on this um, when we were um, power holders. So document number nine was leaked somehow from the Central Committee of the party in Beijing, and it constitutes um, seven no's. And I would encourage you to read it. I mean, in Chinese, if you can, in English or whatever language you prefer, um, if necessary. And it is essentially a litany of things that um, must be contested, including um, constitutional democracy, universal values, civil society, individual rights, um, total marketization, journalism via freedom of the press, historical nihilism against the history of the party in New China, and no to any questioning of the socialist nature of socialism with Chinese characteristics. As someone that used to live in the Far East, I particularly like the last one. But of course, it's the, it's the first um, five or six that are tremendously important. And those people, a few years later, that were applauding Xi um, in Davos, which I think is going on um, at the moment, I would wager that they didn't really know about document number nine um, either, which would have made it, although there's a question about whether they would have applauded never um, the less. The, the, where I end up um, is that it is easier to co cooperate deeply with those with whom we have more in common and fear less. And the point isn't that we can't cooperate with China. We're going to have to. We can't push China beyond the pale, for goodness sake, a problem in one of John Rawls's models of international relations. We need peaceful coexistence with China. Um, existential threats facing the world, including climate change, can't be addressed without cooperation with China. But we, when it comes to trade, we need to, um, as they do with us, need to avoid an over-dependence over that, that jeopardizes um, our, our security and even our way of life. And that as we share more, then we can trade, and by trade I mean commerce in the 18th century sense of kind of everything, exchanges and everything. We can do more because we run fewer um, risks. The, the, the abiding principles, when I bridge down to the practical stuff, are avoid wishful thinking. I think that the terms of the WTO organization in, when it's created after the end of the Cold War and of Chinese entry reflected wishful um, thinking. Um, I think policy should be what's called robust by economists, which means trying to minimize the maximum costs to you of bad states of the plausible bad states of the world, and that one systems, domestic and international, should be resilient. That actually does a lot of work when it comes to the financial um, sector. The, I want to say two more things before giving two examples. One is I think liberal states should have a bias towards universalism in international regimes, um, but not in a way where everybody has a veto. I'll explain that in a second. And certainly not in a way that precludes coalitions of the willing um, cooperating more deeply. And the second thing I want to emphasize is that we can't hand over international policy to international judges um, and, and other bosses of international organizations. I want to give two 
examples of that. Can you do uh, those two examples in, say, two minutes? Yep, I can. Um, I'll say something about trade and something about cross-border investment and um, national security and maybe something about the dollar will come up in questions. So in a f more than half a decade ago, there was an important case that went to the WTO appellate body. China had been using its state-owned enterprises to subsidize exports. The United States objected to this as being illegal subsidies and said we're going to uh, introduce countervailing measures. This is not at all complicated. China reduces the power of, of their um, exports into the United States. The United States says, no, you can't. We're going to offset that with a tariff. China says, um, actually, you can't do that because uh, our subsidies aren't subsidies within the meaning of the treaty. That goes up to the appellate board. The appellate board concludes that China's right because the state-owned enterprises aren't policy bodies within the meaning of the treaty. The first thing to say about that is it's, there's something slightly ridiculous about it, and also you get the sense, as one does often with the US Supreme Court, of them just being slightly out of their depth. But the more important thing to say about it is, I mean, court cases here over, you know, for hundreds of years have been, certainly the last 200 years, have been decided in a way that occasionally public opinion and parliament don't agree with. The, the decision stands in a backward-looking way. Parliament um, passes legislation that changes the law in a forward-looking way. This is not possible in, in the WTO. What one would expect to happen after this decision, Beijing very happy, Washington very fed up, Brussels and the European capitals pretty fed up, you'd expect a bargaining session between um, Beijing, Washington, with Brussels and perhaps Tokyo at the table, and some accommodation would be reached where everybody ended up in a, China would end up in a slightly less good place, everybody else would end up in a slightly better place, perhaps China would, would be closest to their um, bliss point. Can't happen, that would be a forward-looking policy and the rest of the world would have to accept it. Can't happen because everybody's got a veto. Can't we change the rules of the game? No, you can't because everyone's got a veto. So the people that devised or drafted the WTO treaty um, implicitly thought one of two things. Um, either that they had written the perfect treaty, or having done that kind of thing, I mean, this is kind of beyond silly, um, but maybe they thought that. Or they thought the world was destined that any new rising state would be lovely liberal and somehow we would like them. So that's just um, naive. And basically we have a thing that, we have a treaty that is committed to some ideal of universalism but actually makes universalism hard to pursue um, because it brings the two great powers into, into conflict. I will say one thing very quickly about um, bilateral investment treaties and, and national security. The most extraordinary thing I discovered while writing the book about bilateral investment treaties is that other than people that work on them, no one knows anything about them at all. Um, and yet they're absolutely extraordinary. There are thousands of them, and they structure the world economy in ways that I... I mean, there's a part of me that thinks I should... I mean, how on earth was I allowed to hold office without, uh, without knowing some of these things? Um, they're tremendously um, important, but the name of the game now is, is how can bilateral investment treaties find their way through a world um, in which people are going to want to... Um, bar the export of, of certain technologies that might threaten us or them and bar cross-border investment, inwards cross-border investment 
in ways that could damage our security. And I suspect that what we will see is a revival of the kind of COCOM structure that existed in Vienna after, during the Cold War, where the big Western states and Eastern democracies coordinated on these controls, because otherwise it will be a jungle. I think we live in a world, which I haven't touched on, where we are in a lingering status quo when it become, comes to the international monetary system um, because of the inertial value of the incumbency of the dollar. I think that, for good or ill, is tremendously important because I think American security hegemony depends quite a lot on the role of the dollar. But in everything else, I think we are between superpower struggle and new Cold War. And finding a stable point between the two which doesn't tip over into the kind of 1930s-style protectionism that impoverishes us all, or alternatively doesn't go far enough and leaves us vulnerable, um, and them vulnerable, um, to aggressive cyber attacks or, or whatever, is, I think, going to be tremendously difficult. And for those of you that are young, you live, you live in an age where top policymakers are going to have to be a lot better than they ever needed to be over the 30 years that I was a public servant. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, Richard. Many things to bite into. Yeah, indeed. Um, Is this fine? Good. So, um, I mean... <clears throat> This is a massive book in, in more senses than the obvious uh, one, in that it's uh, incredibly rich in, in the different um, disciplines that it melds together. Uh, and we, we've already seen, you know, there's international relations theory there, there's, there's um, philosophy, there's economic theory, there's accounts of um, of uh, global justice and so forth, and I think that blend is is is, however, very necessary. I mean, having dipped my toe into uh, a much more restricted um, uh, sphere of this uh, sort of debate in thinking about legitimacy in in the EU, I, I immediately became aware of my own short shortcomings. So I'm I'm full of admiration for. Um, uh, how much you have pulled together um, in in thinking about this issue globally. Now, as as uh, a political theorist, the, the bit of the the book that uh, attracted me and that I feel I'll, I'll talk about is 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 the the use of of Hume that that you make uh, and uh, the development of what you might call uh, a, a Humean realism to buttress Williams' uh, realism. And you do that, I think, to, to, uh, to try and overcome a problem with those two other schools that you, you, you mentioned, the Herbesian school and the Kantian school of, of international and domestic legitimacy. Uh, as you said, the problem with Hobbes is that it requires a coordination of self-interest or the introduction of a hegemon yeah. who can, uh, uh, where 
with the capacity to make might right, as it were. And uh, Kant, as you portray him, though I'm, I'm going to come back and, and defend him a little bit, is uh, it seems to put, it assumes that one can get agreement on conceptions of, of justice that are deeply contested. And, uh, and so, in a certain sense, without, without Hobbes, how are people going to, to do it? And that's Williams's move, in a certain sense. We need to have the political authority uh, in order to then uh, implement um, justice. Then Hume slips through the middle of, of these two, in, in a way, um, uh, in the form of conventions that support mutually beneficial practices. Uh, and uh, you know, what, one of his great examples, as you say in the, in, the, in the treatise, is that of two farmers who need to cooperate to bring in their, their harvests. And, uh, and as a result, um, a convention that they do uh, emerges. But I think for that convention to work, there's Hobbes and Kant standing in the background. Uh, as it were. So you need to have uh, a rough equality of interest there. Uh, um, Tucker Acres may be bigger than Bellamy Pastures, but uh, I've still got to, to need your help with my harvest. I'm not so small that I can just sort of say, bugger off, I'm not going to help with you because I don't need you. Uh, and to some extent, your concern can't be so big that I think it's not worth my while trying to, to, to help you. There's, so there's, but still, an inequality may, may be there and, and persist. It's only... Uh, if you like, a Pareto improvement for me to, to cooperate with you. And it's got to be an open-ended uh, arrangement that's going to repeat so that one doesn't get the, the problem of backward in induction, as it's called, whereby I, I anticipate when we won't be cooperating in some time in, in the future. So uh, it's Habesian and it's a Kantian notion of promise keeping has to be there uh, at the at the background that somehow a practice uh, re requires that so that then in the international sphere I mean Hume might be a plausible way of thinking about the thesis that um, is attributed to, to, to Montesquieu of of the benefits of commerce, what he called du commerce. And obviously, you know, Hume bought into <laughs> that theory and his great mate Adam Smith elaborated it. Uh, and yes, I mean, to some degree, the WTO might itself be a kind of elaboration of a, of a certain version of, though it's one which of course, involves a lot of injustice between the big players who 
write the rules of the game and, and impoverished uh, states who have, to, who have no choice but to, to be part of it. Uh, so it's written by, by, if you like, Tucker Acres and Bellamy Pastures just has to, uh, has, has to comply. But even that may not work unless there's more Hobbes and Kant involved than, than is perhaps there in, in the WTO, for, partly for the reason that you've just given. But think of a much more powerful one. Um, German policymakers clearly thought that involving Russia in trade was going to mean that something like the invasion of Ukraine would not happen. Uh, but, you know, Putin's gamble was that cutting off energy supplies is a much bigger stick than supplying him with um, goods and services uh, because sanctions on goods and services take a lot longer to bite and are much harder to make bite than turning off the gas tap, uh, which is immediate. Um, and, I mean, his gamble hasn't worked because the EU and NATO turn out to be much more Hobbes and Kant-like than he bargained for. In, in other words, they're, they're stronger structures. Um, so there I don't think, you know, Hobbes, uh, Hume hasn't come to the rescue. It's that we've got more Kant and, 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 and Hobbes. And so that's my, my first sort of query, really, is, is can he really come to the rescue? In the book, I think there's only maybe one example that you give where you sort of say, in climate change negotiations, um, where China hasn't been arguably doing its bit, what might lead it to do? Well, is, is if there's a, a broad Humean thought that we've really got to do something about that. But I think, again, it's more that in the, the way in which these things are being debated, they're more structured than, than Humean. They're more, I mean, they're not structured as well as one might. They're, there's no compliance mechanism or whatever. But uh, you do actually have to get up and, and say, at these agreements that you're not going, and there are costs in doing, doing that. Um, and my se second and last point, which I'll be very brief about, is that it's about the new world order of, of multilateralism. And isn't that the, as with the farmers, <laughs> isn't the real world uh, scenario for, uh, to bring about even the, the slimmed down set of principles that you advocate, hasn't that got to be the type of world that one has, the multilateral world? Um, and which in a way, I mean, ironically talking, uh, you know, is what the EU has sort of created. And I think that that is actually the Kantian world, your, the new world order, because Kant actually accepted Hobbes for, um, 
for the domestic order. He said, yeah, unless you've got a political authority, there's no point in talk talking about justice. He, he only added the proviso that your political authority, if it's going to be capable of being, of meeting the Williams condition of not being worse than the problem that you're escaping from, has itself got to be Republican in form. It's got to be capable of being controlled by the people that it, 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 it serves. But in those conditions, you can talk about justice. But then he, he sort of Unlike some of his contemporary followers, he didn't think that that was a plausible solution to international justice and global solutions. Instead, there he thought you needed to have a more multilateral system, it was, um, which he thought would be promoted through international trade. Um, and I think on that note, Richard, yeah. we, will, we will end. Yes, good luck. I know you said you'd speak for five, and I always know that's ten. But when we get 50, I have to stop you. <laughs> um, first, I, I, well, I'd first like to say I'm slightly flattered and bewildered to be described as the real-world participant. I think many of my readers who work in business or the military would probably disagree. But, um, but that said, I'm going to focus more on uh, less on the theory and more on the you know, um, events. So... Uh, uh, I mean, this is an incredibly encyclopedic and analytical and original book, and it's the kind of strategic thinking that's sorely needed um, at the moment. We seem to be trapped at the moment between um, uh, the sort of uh, pandering politicians and, and publics or sections, sections of the public going off in, into fantasy lands, and then the... Um, sort of unthinking, technocratic, insular world of, of the Mandarin class. And one of the things I like about this book is it's not a fight-back uh, argument. It's not saying, this is how we put down the dreadful populists. It's saying, actually, um, there are some real, really new things going on here that matter, that are going to be sustained, that are legitimate, and that need to be incorporated if the system itself is to remain legitimate. Um, and it puts together, you know... Uh, political and, and world with how things actually work in practice and not just who we say we are, but, but how we behave. Um, so uh, the, the, um, uh, on, the, on the question of legitimacy as well, I mean, we talk, tend to talk about legitimacy um, in democracies as really an internal question. It's a domestic question, you know, um, uh, as to whether our governments retain legitimacy and, you know, but actually, um, you know, this, as the, the book outlines, legitimacy isn't just a question of whether someone's saying an election was stolen. It's broader than that. It's the mood. It's the strength of institutions. It's the degree to which they are um, dynamically responding to changes in technology and society. Um, and it's also... Um, Legitimacy is also a question of, you know, the struggle for recognition, which reminded me of, of more of a Hegel, um, Hegelian way of looking at the world and, and the idea of respect. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, internationally, that's something that we underrate at our peril. I mean, you only had to watch Sergei Lavrov at, at Davos this week talking in, you know, what to most of us in, in the Western world seemed like a parallel universe, um, but you know, these were the. This was the sort of talking, the the um, 
exposition of a, of a man representing a, a country in a very weak state. Um, but it, but it was also, he was also talking to audiences that we probably weren't so aware of, where his critique, you know, comparing uh, NATO to Hitler, you know, doesn't sound absurd, you know, in parts of the world that have been on the sharp end of, of Western colonialism in the past. Um, and so, uh, you know, without understanding the way that plays out in the world, we're not going to get very far with promoting our own systems and our own ideas. Um, but I do wonder with, you know, although we have, I think the idea of legitimacy in international relations and institutions is valuable, um, as you said, there's also an ideological battle going on here. And, you know, we can't help but feel there is a goodie and a baddie in this. And, you know, um, do we really think that a regime that imprisons a million and a half um, Uyghurs in concentration camps is legitimate? Can we pretend that we think it is? Um, and surely, you know, they're going to sense that. And that's going to have its own... Uh, um, logic, its own um, merciless logic that it, that, that it will lead to, to different um, situations that we may not have anticipated. Um, on the, the, so the four scenarios that you outline on the status quo, the struggle between superpowers, the new Cold War, or the multipolar world, I was struck that none of these um, involve China conclusively gaining the upper hand and the U.S. entering precipitous decline, which um, after 2008 was certainly the view in Beijing and, and pro maybe in Moscow as well. Um, and I wonder why, why, whether that's optimism, faith in the U.S., or whether that's, um, you know, what, what's behind that. Um, and I was also intrigued that by the estimate that the your your, your estimate of the likelihood of a of a huge disastrous war was was only was ten percent, um, which I personally thought was quite optimistic. Um, although I, hopefully I'm wrong, but uh, you look at an issue like Taiwan, and it's hard to imagine a more combustible situation. You have an island that is responsible f uniquely for the manufacture of a key resource, which is semiconductors, which cannot be easily transferred anywhere else, um, which is claimed in a territory by the rising superpower, but relies heavily on the existing superpower. And, um, uh, I, you know, that seems like a scenario that's really uh, very difficult to see how that resolves, unless potentially it involves, you know, the, the removal of, of semiconductor supply chains to somewhere else. Um, and I wonder also the degree to which, if that happens, uh, the, the Western world or the free world is in the business of fundamentally rethinking our economic models and questioning, you know, the, um, the, the liberal economic consensus that has presided for a long time. You know, we're getting back into the realm of industrial strategy, supply chain, nurturing, that kind of thing on a much grander scale than we have before, um, or at least in recent times. Uh, so on the question of, the, of um, you know, the, the, whether the US will go into decline or not, I mean, the US is obviously wracked by lots of internal problems that are very obvious, you know, inequalities, poor health, debt, guns, um, but there's also uh, questions of, um, ideological questions that are internal, and one of those is obviously, and this isn't just a US problem, but a Western problem, um, a sense of, you know, what, what 
the pessimist would call self-hatred and what maybe optimists would call a, you know, uh, a long overdue revaluation, you know, but I mean, you talk a lot about Hume, buildings named after Hume are now being renamed. Uh, he's being expunged from the record. And yeah. is that, how big a, of a problem is that? But that, you know, another element to that, aside from this, the culture war side of this is, um, as you mentioned, that the crowds in Davos, you know, cheering the, the Chinese, uh, uh, the sort of fantasy world created by Chinese speeches in Davos about, um, you know, how neo-Maoism is over and China's the defender of globalization. Um, you know, how much of a problem is it that our own elites uh, seem a bit tired of democracy and would rather live in a more efficient world where that's, that's over? Um, and then on the, on the dollar, um, uh, if the international system as now constructed and the economy depends upon the dollar and, you know, it's uh, free-flowing around the world, then... You know, if the U.S. does encounter some crisis or declines, how, how what does that mean for the for the global economy? Can it survive? Does it have to um, to reinvent itself in some other way? Um, and then, uh, uh, and then, you know, you on the other on the flip side, you know, China. You talked about China, the, the idea China will stumble, and you know, its its internal problems are obviously also well known. It's demographic, huge explosion in debt. Um, but you've said you think that China is ultimately resilient, and I wonder what directions um, we could imagine China might go in in a post-Xi Jinping world. I mean, you know, he's in his 70s. I mean, he could live a long time, but um, he's also in a... Uh, he's, he's kind of eroded the base of any other power that might exist and um, undermined any other uh, uh, possible scenario in future. Um, so, and then on, on the question of, um, you know, whether we can, we can adopt the way of thinking that you think is necessary, um, and one of them, for example, being that the U.S. has to recognize it needs allies, um, and I wonder whether this can happen, uh, you know, and that it also has to get serious about its fiscal situation, I think you said, and that, it seems to me that's, that's not going to happen unless some major crisis forces yeah. it to happen, yeah. and... How do, how do you have that crisis but survive it and not have an existential one but also get the change that you need? Um, uh, and, um, yeah, and then I also was thinking about technology and its effects on our societies, the, the way information flows. And, I mean, in the UK at the moment, the government's engaged in this kind of crazy endeavour, the Online Safety Bill, which is an attempt to control the flow of information in an unprecedented way and kind of cut the, US, the UK off from the world. Um, and, you know, but, but ultimately technology is reshaping society um, in a way that, you know, international relations will not control. Uh, and then, yeah, you, you, you say also that we need to try and, the liberal world needs to try and live by its own creed. Um, but what if, you know, as, as Trump always said, this just makes us the chumps because, you know, and, and the example that you gave of the WTO, you know, not functioning um, in the way that was anticipated and yet we're unable to change it. Do we have to abandon these institutions because they were just, they, they, they're so flawed that they can't accommodate the change that we need or is there some way that we can save them and reform them? So uh, uh, I will stop there. Perfect, thank, you. <laughs> thank you. And in the interest of time, I'm going to launch straight into my comments on this wonderful book. 
So at the heart of this book is the idea that neither aggressive cosmopolitan idealism of the liberal variety, exemplified in John Rawls's Law of the Peoples, nor the cold rationalist self-interested realism of the Hobbesian orientation that are found in international relations theory, so neither of those two things are appropriate to legitimate international power in the global sphere. The solution to legitimating that power lies somewhere in between these two approaches. Now, the solution detailed in the book is not a crude compromise. It's a deep one. At its base, the book's concerned with making international cooperation stable, durable, and legitimate. And the emphasis on legitimacy is the thread that runs throughout the book. The foundational moment for legitimacy in this book is how political actors answer what he calls the first political question, the first international political question, or the basic legitimacy demand. And that is, how do you secure order, protection, safety, trust, and conditions for cooperation? It's the foundational moment for legitimacy. Now, the deep theory underlying how this question can be answered is to, an, an account of how practices, customs, and values relate to one another. And this he derives from David Hume. So on this account, and I'll simplify to an extreme extent just so that we can all be on the same page, is that if we observe practices of mutual exchange that are in the self-interest of the cooperating parties, we can foster an appreciation and respect for those norms. So imagine you develop a practice of consulting, one state consults another before they, they have a military operation against them or they levy a, a burdensome sanction against them. The other side does the same. It begins as an ad hoc arrangement. Over time, it might develop into a custom and after a long period of time, it might develop into a value of consultation. Now, in this way, practices, customs, and values have a genealogical link between them. And much of the advancement, I think it's fair to say, of both constitutionalism and the global world order can actually be traced by observing how these features interact. Now, these various vague ideas, um, they're not vague in the book, but as I've presented them, they are. They crystallize into a concrete order of principles, and I think most importantly in chapters 13 and 14. 13 on international relations and 14 about the principles that constitutional states should observe when they delegate power to international organizations. I'll focus on chapter 13. In that chapter, Tucker dismisses the Rawlsian project that would lead to outcasting some pariah states, those that would commit gross violations of human rights. But he also lays down principles for how states can secure an order that achieves peace and stability, and even prosperity if you're lucky. That's the first order of cooperation, the basic legitimacy demand. Neither, on the other hand, does he want to exclude clubs of nations that want to cooperate further and incorporate meaningful commitments to human rights and democracy as part of their terms of cooperation. So how does this work? Well, he introduces the idea of concentric legitimation circles. So the most capacious of these circles, the very biggest club, is one that has a very thin set of norms that the members have to abide by. Norms respecting peace, security, diplomacy, and the basic state versus state adjudication of all of the above. That's, those are thin rules. It's meant to be a big club. And we can say, roughly, that's a bit like the UN order. In that club, states can do a lot to their people, but not anything. 
It seems that some basic compliance with the laws of war, at the very least, or use cogens norms, which I'll come to a bit later, would be required to be a member of that club. But there's another club, uh, which is a narrower one, where nations that want to form a union with these thicker commitments I've already mentioned, like the European Union, can also meet. And in, in Tucker's scheme, provided the narrower circles and the broader ones can coexist together, we can see how you can have a regime that is both expansive and not too demanding in, of the, the politics of the member states, as well as having a smaller clubs, which are still significant. Now, I'll move on to some critical reflections here. This does sound, at this point, quite a bit like a theory that does describe much of the current world order. So who are the enemies of this vision? Well, one, it seems, are the cosmopolitans. The, these people that are advocating for a, let's say, a world court, a federal international legal system, and a program of redistribution between nations. I think that in the analysis in this book, that's unrealistic and would even frustrate the basic legitimacy demands of providing order through cooperation. However, when it comes to dealing with cosmopolitan justice at pages 329 to 330, you cast doubt on that, but you ultimately admit that there's nothing wrong with global redistribution, provided it's done with the crystal clear consent of the donor nations, rather than, say, surreptitiously, through international agencies that cut backroom details, uh, de deals, like I wonder if the European Commission's what you had in mind here. Now, I don't think many cosmopolitans actually object to that demand, so I'm not sure how big the space is between you. I don't think that they're suggesting that this should be imposed forcefully. Perhaps I haven't read enough of that literature. The second critical reflection I want to make is about what appears to me to be the sequential relationship between securing order on the one hand, and advancing international good governance norms, human rights and democracy, on the other. Let's start with the observation that I think needs to be made, that the core prescriptions in the book can be read as status quo friendly. Contra boat rocking, in other words. Now, it, it seems that the basic legitimation demand is presented as the thing you need to meet first. The emphasis is on first, and I wondered, Paul, whether you're suggesting that you need to concentrate on order and not rattle the boat too much about human rights and democracy norms. Well, I have the feeling, and I think your criticism of Rawls on this point isn't entirely fair. I mean, Rawls has a sophisticated understanding of the sequencing between a modus vivendi, a constitutional consensus, and an overlapping consensus in political liberalism. I think he was quite politically astute. But I wonder, I wonder about whether the actual development of international relations in the post-war period was actually a, a mix of liberal normativism in the form of the Atlantic Charter and the UN Human Rights Framework, as well as the design of institutions and representation with them, within them that was mindful of the need to maintain order, your first basic political demand, keep people like the Soviet Russia and China in the club. But in building that post-war order, there was a tremendous amount of idealistic norm setting and advocacy, also together with the political realism of maintaining order. So I'm not sure an emphasis on strict prioritization of the one over the other is needed, and I feel that the post-war experience suggests keeping the normativism quite high on the political agenda was an, a crucial ingredient 
uh, in the success of that project. You list, and I'll close with this comment, you list on page 456, you have a quote from Hersch Lauterpacht where he rattles off the great um, international lawyer who has played a large role in setting up the Nuremberg Tribunals. Great man. He, he rattles off a number of, of things that he believes that a just international order should do. And I think you think that they're, they're quite dreamy, but in fact, several of those things have actually been achieved in the last 50 years in ways that would blow the minds of any international lawyer that was working around his time. I'll stop there. Fantastic. Self-regulated by uh, a law professor, kept to time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, big book, big questions to you. Can I have a very short reply or, to- Or do you want to go straight, we to, go the straight to the audience? Yeah, yeah. It's your choice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll go, to, go the straight to the audience. We'll overrun yeah. by five minutes as well, because it's such a big book. So, questions from the room? Yeah, say who you are and uh, then your question. more paper. I've completely amateurish on my part. Okay, just shout loudly your question and your name. Okay, the um, videographer is saying we don't need microphones. Is that what you're saying? Oh, it's not working. Okay. Oh. I was waiting for it to go green, but it, it's not going green, so yes, I can see that. I thought you were saying don't, don't do it. Okay. Yep. Over there. Hello, my name's Sakshem, and you mentioned that. Uh, Due to ideological differences, we'd almost be destined for a superpower struggle between the West and the People's Republic of China. So given this, do you think it's um, the logical conclusion to reach is to try and weaken China when the West is in a position of advantage, such as the Biden, such as the Biden administration seems to be doing by restricting access to semiconducting, semiconductors, depriving China of the computing power needed to train AI at scale? Okay, we'll collect a couple of other questions yeah. and give you a chance to think while we're collecting. Thank you. This one, one here. Uh, hi. Uh, so my question is actually, there's a huge focus on uh, China and the legit legitimacy that they have or not. Uh, I wonder if democratic backsliding and rising nationalism actually questions the legitimacy of already existing powerful nations. Uh, a great question from one of our public policy students. <laughs> is there another question in the room? Okay, here's one. Yeah. Um, Your concentric circles analogy sounded a bit more like a, a Venn diagram to me in some, in, to some degree, but uh, um, to pick up your point about how you decide what clubs you join and which ones you don't, what, what moral compass would you use and, and who would decide that? Is it okay for, uh, to, to have uh, relations with a, a country that... Uh, imprisons people without trial as long as they don't kill them or have capital punishment. Who signed, where does the fine detail of that pragmatic approach come from? Okay, well, there's one other question behind and then we'll give Paul a chance to respond. Uh, John Vlasto, I, I chair the World Federalist Movement. Uh, quick question, just thinking about what's going on with the environment, is the time scale on which the environmental issues are developing going to dominate the long competition between China and America when it comes to the need to reform global governance? Okay. Okay. Would you like to tackle all these big, very important and <laughs> rather big questions? I, do I need... No, I don't need a mic, do I? No, sorry. Um, as I do, I'll weave in um, some responses to, to Jeff Juliet and, and Richard. 
I think one of the things that comes out of Richard's remarks that should matter most to the students in the room is that on the whole you will do better to read Kant or Hobbes themselves than the Kantians or the Hobbesians um, today. I think that's particularly true of, of Kant for what it's um, worth. I want to start with the, the, the last question. Of, of course, um, I don't know the answer, nor does anybody um, else. And I think one of the most important points that the book makes, which can sound trivial, but I don't think it is at all, is that there isn't a script uh, that, I mean, this is a kind of theme of Bernard Williams's, that, that judgment can't be um, um, avoided. And this bears on another question, that what philosophers call the problem of dirty hands in that where, where are the limits to, to how dirty your hands um, can be. But going back to the environmental question, as I'm sure you know, that there are very distinguished economists, Nobel Prize winners, who said actually the way through the environmental problem, the climate change problem, is to embed um, the climate change game, I'm going, I don't mean game in a trivial sense, I mean in a formal sense, in the trade game, so that if we enter into a treaty and a particular state, maybe ours, um, diverges from their promise, then it would be legal under the WTO treaty for everybody else to apply um, tariffs. And actually, I think if that had been done, um, like waving hands 20 years ago, that would have been a very smart thing to do um, indeed. But my response to Bill Mordhouse and others has been, well, actually, we're now in a state of the world, and we have been for a little while, where the trade game, so the climate game embedded in the trade game. The trade game is embedded in, in a security game. And, and I'm, I'm going to put this in a certain way that isn't meant to trivialize it at all. That if, if you imagine you and I um, advising leader Xi on how much China should spend in, in um, making their contribution to curing climate change, at, at some point, either Leader Xi himself or one of his advisors is going to look at somebody else in the room and say, how many aircraft carriers is that? That the unit of account, when the basic order itself is at stake, um, becomes those things that are going to help you um, preserve at least yourself, if not, if not prevail. So I, I have become, I think the delays in dealing with climate change have been tremendously costly not, not just because the world has been warming up as, as the delays have occurred, but because the geopolitics have become so much more difficult um, as we have, um, as time has, has passed. I, I will now jump to the first question from the audience, if I may. I, I don't think it's a question, I, I, I don't, well, at least I myself don't mean it to be a matter of, well, so we should have a powwow, and how can we weaken um, China? Um, and that's partly because I don't think that that's a realistic aim, nor do, at, at, at a number of levels, any number of levels you like. What I think we ought to do is, and should have been doing for longer, is uh, um, avoiding mistakes where we render ourselves more vulnerable than, than otherwise. So there were debates about how far should we, and we, we just isn't the UK. It, the West, how far should we import certain types of Chinese technology which may allow um, sabotage, etc. This is symmetric. Well, ni neither state would sensibly do so, and a number of main states 
travelled through time effectively doing that before they woke up to it. I think there's a there's there's serious scholarship to be done about how how long wishful thinking went went on. Um, but this, of course, also includes attending to our own problems. I mean, the, what's at um, the root of the book is that the, a certain kind of international realist says actually states want to preserve themselves. I think that's just too, just too um, simplifying. I mean, states can only preserve themselves if the people that live in them think that way of life is worth preserving. I, haven't, I happen to think, and this will bring me back to Richard, I, I happen to think that our deepest legitimation norms mean that our way of life is worth preserving, not to the exclusion of other ways of life, but in ways where we shouldn't recklessly, and I think we have recklessly, um, made ourselves more vulnerable and jeopardized our way of life more than we, we needed to. Now, where does this come from? I mean, this goes to Richard's um, challenge and to some extent Jeff's, and we haven't got enough time to deal with this um, properly. I mean, I think where, where, and this is more evident in Williams than in Hume, that as Jeff says, we solve these problems, we develop some conventions, they become habits, they become norms, we internalize them to some degree. But what does internalizing mean? And, and I mean, does this have normative force? Right at the end of the treatise, right at the end of the treatise, um, Hume has virtue reflect upon itself. This is a kind of reflexive normativity. And, and Williams is absolutely there. I mean, he says there must be a, a kind of critical principle. He's kind of one, if you like, Frankfurt School um, stripped of the nihilism, where we need to ask ourselves, well, are these, are these values that we hold, are they actually, you know, are, they, are they as worthwhile as we claim them to be? And I want to say um, that Western society, one of the good things from the Enlightenment is that we've been quite good at that collective reflection. And I don't particularly just mean in seminar rooms. I actually mean down in pubs and clubs. Um, and that freedom of expression and freedom of association is tremendously important to how we, to we validate our way of life. So my sense of normativity is, is and of legitimation is, I mean, essentially, I, 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 I don't elide it. I don't hold to the distinction between sociological um, legitimation and some kind of separate ethereal, putting it pejoratively, normative religion. I think the normative is a special aspect of the sociological. And in a sense, that's what Habermas has written about, but he kind of, kind of strives for transcendental groundings for that. I want to say at this point that I kind of agree with, with Jeff um, up to a point, I mean, up to a significant point. There's somewhere in a book where I say, if for all of its ills as well as, as goods, if the crowning achievement of, of British preeminence, or some form of classical liberalism that was tremendously open, at least amongst the rich, I think that people will look back and see the Nuremberg trial and the response to the Holocaust as the zenith of, of, a, of an American-led world, that, that we confronted the deepest horrors of civilization that were perpetrated by us, in a sense, we as Europeans, and thought about how that could be, um, what the hell we could do about that. So my second circle of legitimation is a circle where the peremptory norms of international law are tremendously important in terms of how far we 
we cooperate. You mean the outermost circle? No, the, 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 one, in, the one in front. The outermost circle, I think it is, I think peaceful existence, I think what's missing in rules is that rule, I agree with your description of rules, except perhaps for one thing. Rules is Laws of People, which, what it's worth, I think, is his best book. Um, he doesn't contemplate the possibility that there will be a great power that is deeply illiberal. Mm. And somewhere I say, you know, it is completely unrealistic to treat a state as beyond the pale if you can't keep them there. So that sums up, we can't treat China like that. Um, China might easily be four times as big as us. Um, the West in, in a while. But that doesn't mean that we have to give up on our sense of, of, of if you like, of what we have managed to become. Um, now, that does mean that we need to turn to our own problems. I mean, this is kind of one of the things that Juliet un underlines. I mean, there's a, there's a, there is a certain style of thought, not miles away from it, saying foreign policy should drive domestic policy. Well, it, it's more complicated than that. We have no chance um, of, of sustaining ourselves unless we address our own problems. Not just because that's a form of soft power, but because actually we need to um, solve our, our domestic problems to remain who we are. The book is less about that, but it's my, I'm certainly not wanting to argue that the only threat to our way of life comes from outside. We're managing to conjure up internal threats to um, our way of life, from lots of different places, by the way. Um, I think I will stop at that point. Okay. I think we'll stop there. There's a chance at the reception to, to ask Paul additional questions. So I think we'll take the point to thank Paul for a thought-provoking book and presentation, and to our discussants for provoking questions as well. So thank you very much. Paul.